I mean, it was a little telling that it sounded, which makes it sound like it could be sooner than later, was they said students going back to school in the spring would not In the fall? They said spring in spring. this article. I don't okay. know. It sounded crazy to me that anyone's going back to school yeah. before the summer. It's April 45th today. <laughs> April 22nd. Uh, actual date is. Um, I like this. Wednesday, 40. April 22nd. Okay. Two th- uh, main things we want to talk about is antibody testing, antibodies in the blood, and what's going to have. Some people are starting to think about what it's going to look like when we start opening up to real life again. Yeah. Sh- yeah. Um, but maybe just a few quick things to start. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Ontario announced today that they're going to finally start more proactive surveillance in nursing homes. So any nursing home with a COVID case, everyone is apparently going to get tested, such is my understanding. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to start proactively testing people in uh, homes with no known cases. Mm. Which is like what they should have been doing many, many weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I guess good. Yeah, but Finally. late. Yeah. <coughs> and also, apparently announced today is that disabled people who are not able to go out to testing centers are supposed to now be able to get in-home tests. So good. That is good. I'm just so skeptical. I just, I read that <coughs> and I'm like, that's a thing that you're saying at a podium mm-hmm. that has to trickle down through 50 levels of government and healthcare. And do I really think a disabled person is going to get tested at home? No, I'll believe it when I see it. Let's see. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly heard things before that haven't come true when Christine, people like Christine Elliott say things, but there are things that do happen, I'm sure. It's good to hear that that is the approach they want to take. Yeah. It's a good. That's true. That's At big. least it's a thing they They're want to do. They're thinking about it. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and then yesterday we heard that the city is going to try and close High Park. Is that is that th- still a thing today? Mm. Are they still saying that today? I don't know. Um, because now it is cherry blossom season mm-hmm. and the park is usually <coughs> overrun. Yes, it is still a thing today. Mm-hmm. Toronto's Hyde Park temporarily closed in effort to stop cherry blossom crowds. Mm. Um, I just don't, I just don't think that's a good idea. Yeah, I didn't think of it in I- with regard to cherry blossom at first when when I saw it, but I guess <coughs> I guess I see the concern. I see the concern for that particular it's a issue. Very big park. Yeah, like close the areas. You with could cherry even blossoms. just put fences around the cherry blossoms. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. Yeah, I was and just then people like. I don't know, like, can't you just have people there kind of enforcing, like, 
limit i don't know limit entrance to the park have people enforcing social distance i don't know i guess i just don't know how i in our area there's just a lot of compliance so maybe it would be a disaster if you let people in there but there's compliance but also i see the like kind of I see. Okay, so with the cherry blossoms, it's sort of like in the ch- on the trail, right? Like if you go on the mm-hmm. the Beltline Trail, mm-hmm. you most of the time you're good, but then like a family with like kids on bikes, like you know, will come riding by, and there's like if there's a family of four and two of them are kids, and there's people riding side by side, you're there's basically no like you're within a foot of them for an instant, mm-hmm. right? Like as they go by. Mm-hmm. And so it's like people try, but it's also the, you are in a fixed, you're kind of in this fixed space. And so but if you have cherry blossoms. It's fixed space, the cherry blossoms. I don't, uh, yeah, I guess it's not the same thing. I don't the know. park. Yeah, it's a big park. You're right, you're right. They could, they could block off the cherry blossom area. I, that would be better. I just, or even not, like, with social distancing, like, tell people not to come. A lot of people will stay home. Right. You're not going to let tour buses in. No. Like. No one's doing tours. No one's doing tour buses. Like, I feel like the number of people will be way lower. Yeah. To start. It just feels like, like, you can't, like. And all the people. No, I I think. People need space to be. And High Park is a very big space for people to be. And people just like and just imagine now all the people that normally would be taking their runs in High Park. Mm -hmm. They're now squeezing onto sidewalks. And yeah, like, yeah, it really like our sidewalks are just not enough. It's challenging even here where I go for a very short run and it is quite challenging to like i have to go on the road pretty often like if you're Mm -hmm. like if there's an like finding a place where there's not two people walking side like like a couple already on a sidewalk yeah you're pretty much all like as a runner i'm always like crossing the street running on the street you barely you really Mm -hmm. can't use the sidewalk because pedestrian like walkers are on the sidewalk and you're always going to be coming up on them you're basically forced onto the road or and you so and you have to kind of I pick roads that there's not too much vehicle yeah. traffic on just to run. And, and the city's not doing anything to address that. Like people keep advocating for them to close streets because there's yeah. so many so much less traffic around yeah. downtown. Yeah. Close streets, open it up to pedestrians and they're not doing it. They just John Tory is such like a You will do what I say, like I don't know. He, I think he said that it was Eileen I- Devilla that was against it. Really? I think so. That's that's his. When he was asked, I saw him say once that the medical officer advised me that it's going to lead to more people congregating on streets, which I just don't see that. I s- just no, see it being I more allowing for people to space out more. Like that's the simple. I think we need to. Well, I mean, part of this is we don't have good evidence for how it's transmitted but we do know or at least a couple studies have shown that the vast amount of transmission is 
in homes, in homes when yeah. you live with somebody. So that leaves like a fraction yeah. for community transmission. And I just feel like the majority, a high percentage of it cannot be from outdoors. Yeah. It like it's in closed spaces. Like a lot of times you need like 15 minutes of contact with somebody before. Yeah. I just think we need to be allowed out more. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to help keep us going. Yeah. In yeah. social distancing. And hopefully put the brakes on these these uh movements where they're gaining steam that are trying to push for Again, opening. Again, are they do are they gaining steam here? I don't know. I suspect there's people we haven't heard from yet, but I suspect there's groups of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So then where do we go from here? Serum um, testing. Another very good piece in the Atlantic by Ed Young, who wrote how the pandemic will end a month ago. Um, and now he did, what is the piece called? Our Pandemic Summer. So good. Um, yeah, what do I, there's so much to say about it. I think we just, there's so much we don't know. Um, and so much we're about to find out. Mm -hmm. And one of those things is, how infectious is COVID-19? Mm -hmm. So right now we have a rough idea of how many people have been symptomatically infected. Mm -hmm. And we don't pay close attention to these numbers because they're not very good. So Canada right now, we have 41,000 confirmed cases. Wow. That number has gone up an awful lot since the last time I looked at that. It, yeah. 41,650 cases. Mm -hmm. So we know that that's not the total cases. That's just who was tested. Mm -hmm. um, lots of people got sick at home and weren't tested. And you could probably estimate that okay by like a survey or something. Yeah. You know, yeah. you could estimate. Maybe it's, I don't know double that triple that mm -hmm. but not an order of magnitude higher probably mm -hmm. but then there's the very unknown asymptomatic mm -hmm. mild cases mm -hmm. how prevalent are those mm -hmm. estimates vary mm -hmm. wildly mm -hmm. from 25 percent of cases are asymptomatic to like we are there's the 50 times more cases. The majority may be um, asymptomatic. The majority may be. So that's going to affect the future. Depending on where the truth lies, um, that's going to vastly mm -hmm. impact how we go forward. Because if, if it's kind of the low end, if we think that... 25 or 50 percent of cases are asymptomatic mm -hmm. then the death rate that we think we have 
is roughly still true. It's going to end up being somewhere around 1%. I don't know, 0.5, 1, 2, so, you know, somewhere in that mm-hmm. vicinity. But if the asymptomatic cases are much, much, much higher and there's like an order of magnitude more people infected than we think they are than we think there are mm. then all of a sudden the death rate is about 0.1% and then you can start to think about getting maybe natural herd immunity mm-hmm. much easier than mm-hmm. we otherwise thought mm-hmm. Assuming once you get it, that the antibodies stay in your system. Yes. So that's part two, is assuming that getting it provides immunity for some period of time, which is still something that we don't know. Yeah. And so the way you find out how many people have been affected is you go and you do seroprevalence studies where you test people's blood and look for the presence of antibodies Mm -hmm. against COVID-19 and people are starting to these studies and they are so um, what's the word controversial Mm. the conclusions that are being drawn Mm -hmm. there's one study in Santa Clara where they basically are saying that a much higher percentage of the population is infected than we thought, but their math is very questionable and the tests that are being used have a like a false negative and false positive rate that when you have a very low percentage of the population infected is can make your results kind of m- not meaningful. Like your error bars. Mm-hmm kind of cover your whole population Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it really depends and then the criticism i've heard of at least one of these studies is it really depends where you sample if you sample Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know like like a homeless population like i think that was one of the was that one of the studies that was done where they i haven't read either of the california studies i've only read criticisms of them (laughs) Yeah, I I won't say exactly. Like I think it. All I know is it. There's there's been some criticism about just you can't just sample one subpopulation type and try to say that that represents. Yeah, like people are population. also trying to extrapolate from the Diamond Princess ship. Right. Um, and those kind of close, close quarters. So. It's just it's just totally unknown right now. You you can find data mm-hmm. supporting like either end of that vast spectrum. Yeah. Vast gulf of estimate of of the true prevalence of COVID-19. Um but I think it's the more asymptomatic cases, I think I think the better off we are. And the easier it will be to reopen things, maybe. I mean, but the problem is, I what I see is that it's like there's still going to be, for vulnerable populations, there's still going to be 
uh, we'll call it, I'm going to call it a 50% death rate, mm-hmm. right? For, for wha- however you define for vulnerable. very but vulnerable, yeah. Like nursing homes. And so you can do, I guess, this is where it, to me, the number it of asymptomatic cases doesn't seem to matter as much to me. It's like if you have a subpopulation that is 50% death rate or you're, you're like, I think it might even be higher than that based on what we've, what we're seeing, right? Like the, you hear about this in a nursing home and like a nursing home with like a hundred people and like 80 of them are going to die from it. Like it's, it's like might be 80%, you know, in those populations. Then how, like, does it really matter how many people aren't getting it? Like, aren't getting sick if some narrow subpopulation that it's going to rip through like wildfire if it ever gets in there like yeah no but it matters because then that means they're assuming that getting COVID-19 confers immunity on you yeah then if more people have had it yeah there are more immune people yeah buffers yeah yeah it's a bigger buffer to the disease getting into the nursing home to begin with yeah yeah, and I guess you just, once we have these tests that are hopefully better at detecting antibodies, you just make sure everyone that works in the nursing home yeah. ha- has the antibodies or something. And on that note, I think it was in the Atlantic piece, but it may have been in a New York Magazine piece, but <laughs> experts who study this sort of thing are extremely down on the idea of immunity certificates (laughs) okay not good yeah but i don't know if that's true for the specific case of working in a nursing home and what's the what's the rationale i don't i don't have a good grasp on that but it's basically just creating like a two-tiered system and and um and incentive for people to scam the system and get around the system and falsify certificates and that kind of thing i don't yeah i don't have a good handle on it but it was like in the piece i was reading it several experts were quoted and they were quite unanimous Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. their dislike of that kind of system which is very interesting because that means that any leader who's kind of toyed with this has not really <laughs> spoken About with the experts i suppose yeah. but we'll, we'll see i guess we'll see um that that actually links to something so the i guess today was it today that doug ford announced they're bringing the army into nursing homes like so I no guess i didn't hear that yeah i think they're bringing a thousand i think i guess they couldn't find enough Healthcare workers, they're or yeah. they're not, they're n- they're now assuming they're not going to be able to fill all the needs from other healthcare people, mm-hmm. like asking essentially for volunteers from other organizations to come in. Yeah. So they're bringing in, I think, a thousand military personnel to help in nursing homes in Ontario. I think it's two thousand in Quebec that they're going to bring in military. Like medical military people, no. or well, like they're starting with medical military. I don't the think they milita- have that many. Does the military just do anything? I you mean, just call them in like yeah. snowstorm, pandemic, yeah. like yeah. you d- you can just do anything. I mean, they are going to try to do as m- I d- 
I mean, I think everyone's a little like, what are these people going to be able yeah. to do? Because yeah. they're not trained for medical. Yeah. I mean, there are some medic type yeah. people that will obviously be the first people to go in, I think. Mm-hmm. But but um, they're, I think they're going to have to rely on some non-medical military personnel. And so... How did I not hear this? I think the... Like, I think the Quebec premier was visibly angry, it said, in the, the Montreal Gazette was the one article I read talking about, um, you know, he'd ask for volunteers and it's now unclear if the bureaucracy in their healthcare system kind of prevented it just so slow moving that they couldn't get the message through and people have volunteered apparently but they haven't been called in and they haven't you know they can't just get people scheduled and actually moving in there so it might be partly just this bureaucracy problem that they can't get the healthcare workers from other places that want to help Hmm. in but uh, but anyways i think because they need to move fast they're mm-hmm. they're just calling in military personnel for five homes yeah i think it's mainly the outbreak like the places with outbreaks it sounds like because i guess those specific homes are also places where they do the staff are getting sick so they have to stay away and mm-hmm. you know and then i imagine more staff as they come in might also get sick so they'll have each facility will be sent approximately 50 soldiers led by an officer trained as a nurse. Some other enlisted personnel with medical training and various other soldiers with no specific training to help them with general tasks. And they're going to start testing. Yeah. I think I think just having bodies, I mean it's not a lot of this stuff does not require special training yeah, really. It's like true. you're talking about feeding people and getting them out of bed and like things that you if you had someone to ask a question to okay so what do I do next what do I Mm -hmm. need to or what can I get you so you can do this like those I think a lot of it is just uh, or having a second person for a lift or yeah yeah yeah. things like that it it could be can you run and get this like getting things like that together where you don't have to yeah Sitting so and talking. So that all the second person, yeah, the second person is always not a nurse. Mm-hmm. And just not this thing. And, and the pa- and the uh, clients in the homes feeling like their concerns, you know, they have someone they can ask questions to and, and you know, they're not mm-hmm. being left alone for long periods of time. Yeah. And then the other thing that I read in that same article was about Quebec now thinking about what it's going to look like when they start to reopen things, reopen society. And um, so it sounds like they have a plan that they're... Legault, is that how you say his name? Francois Legault, the premier's name. He's going to release, he says, a plan next week about what kind of phases they're sort of imagining. I don't think they have any dates in mind. Um... Yeah, but it'd be interesting to know just l- the criteria because yeah. presumably that that's what they have to build a plan on. Like yeah. we're going to reopen when we see this. Maybe, yeah, yeah. What is that criteria? What are they waiting for? Yeah, yeah. And the one interesting, I mean, it was a little telling that it sounded, which makes it sound like it could be sooner than later, was they said students going back to school in the spring would not have they said spring in spring. this article 
I don't okay. know. It sounded crazy to me that anyone's going back to school yeah. before the summer. But um, it sounds like that's been part of the discussion anyway. So if they go back to school, the parent that it's going to be voluntary, sort of. So parents are not going to be, you know, your kids aren't going to be marked absent or whatever for not being there mm-hmm. um, or something or, or having negative consequences for not yeah. going. Um Oh, there's so much more we need to know. About Do kids transmit this virus? Yeah. David Fisman was tweeting today. Sorry, we can go back to Quebec. But he nope. was just tweeting that there's, like, people ready to go, like, with swabs to, like, test kids and see what the deal is. <laughs> like, are yeah. they getting it or not getting it? Are they asymptomatic? What's happening? Yeah. And, like, they just need, like, a group of students. funding. No, they just need funding. Well, they, yeah, there's all these grant calls. Like, and you would think those should get funded right away. Yeah. Like, CHR has all, There's a whole bunch of grant calls out for that kind of thing. Anyways, that should be high priority on stuff. Quebec. Uh, what else did I say? What other? I can't remember now any of the other things. I don't oh. have the article. I think that's it, though. No, I think the, like, the main thing is that people are starting to think about it. And yeah. Oh, at UHN, I w- one of the calls at UHN today with the VP of Research they were just saying one of the things they are talking about now is opening the building to people. So people coming back to work, but not, you wouldn't come back to work for every day of the week. You might, and I don't know if it's alternating days, you know, you might come in every other day or even less than that, but that's one of the the types Mm -hmm. of things that we can imagine. Just to have less density. Yeah. Not have but everyone in the have building access to your office. I mean, it would do so like it would cut down. Like if everyone went into work every other day, everything calms down, right? Like you have less mm-hmm. people on TTC, you have less people in buildings. It, you know that could be a pro- you could imagine that being a province-wide sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's those are the main things that I'd been thinking about. Okay, I need to read an excerpt from. Ed Yang's piece in the Atlantic um, near the end section for resilience mm-hmm. um, and this yeah I think he's just what did he talk about here just about how or like you were saying how you just think we're going to be on lockdown until January you're like you're just like worst case. You gotta I wanna look for pre- the best plan for the worst. I want to prepare myself mentally for that. Yeah, so that's kind of what he's mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Is like people need to just wrap their heads around the fact that this is going to be a problem for a long time, and mm-hmm. we don't know what kind of problem it's going to be. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but mm-hmm. we need to plan. Yeah, plan for the worst. Anyways, so. Mm-hmm. To my point I was making yesterday about how Caden and I, our lives feel kind of normal. Mm -hmm. Um, He has this paragraph in here that I'm going to read about the disability community Mm -hmm. with, I'll just, with the asterisks of, I realize I am not a member of the disabled community. Mm -hmm. I am a caregiver of a disabled person. Sure. Um, Okay, so he says this. The disability community has also noted that at a time when their health is in jeopardy and their value is in question, 
disabled people are struggling with a new normal that is their old normal. Spatial confinement, unpredictable futures, social distance. Quote, we know how to do community from afar and how to organize from bed, said Ashley Shaw of Virginia Tech, who studies the intersection between technology and disability. Mm-hmm. Instead of feeling this great vacuum, our social life hasn't radically changed. Disability scholars have written about crip time, a flexible attitude toward timekeeping that comes from uncertainty. Quote, everything I enter in my calendar has an asterisk in mind, Shu said. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, mm-hmm. depending on my next can- cancer scan or what's happening in my body. I already live in this world when I'm measuring <coughs> in shorter increments when my future has always been planned differently. Mm-hmm. That paragraph just really resonated. Yeah. and But I think it also shows like that for people that are struggling with this, that there are communities of people out there that have already like learned to live with these things. Like you can live with these things. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever our futures are going to look like for the next year or two or three or four, Mm -hmm. whatever it becomes, we will adapt to it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that's, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that Jeff Fernie, who's the former institute director at Toronto Rehab, wanted to do was create special scholarships for gra- for graduate studies for people with disabilities, for students with disabilities, because they it, there's just got to be some recognition that not everyone can work on the same schedule. Like, there's more uncertainty. Mm-hmm. It just takes more energy to do everything depending on what your condition is, right? Like m- for many people, just getting out of bed and getting ready in the morning just takes a lot longer if you have to, I don't know, if you have a spinal cord injury and you have to use a lift to get out of bed and everything's slower. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, uh, adi- why do we need, it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, the current graduate school systems are set up with very tight timelines and a master's and a PhD have to be done in two years or four years. And that just may not be possible for someone like that. But if given four years or six years, like for the same degrees, like we could have those people finish graduate degrees and then become scientists and study the study some of these mm-hmm. things. And mm. and what and there's and especially nothing especially in the rehab yeah industry. Those are voices you want you so badly. Need. And there's nothing like no like why do we have these arbitrary yeah. Like there's really no need, no reason for someone to have this sort of arbitrary deadline. Mm-hmm. And well, and I mean, the disability community started yelling about this at the very beginning of this pandemic, mm-hmm. when accommodations that they've been asking for from employers f- since the beginning of time, and yeah. were told, <laughs> "Nope, can't do it. It's can't work from home. Can't, can't work yeah. from home. Can't yeah. do that. Nope, nope, nope." And then with the drop of a hat. The whole world has the accommodations that they were screaming for at the top of their lungs. And I think people were kind of pissed off about that. I mean, yeah, I definitely see the why people would be upset. I also see that, I mean, it. there are some things that are, even though you can do it, it does, it, 
may, people still may find it works better the uh, the old way, like having people come in to let's let's say people want to work from home. Whatever, like someone wants to. Yeah, no, but the point is, you can do like the accommodation can yeah. be made when it needs to be made. Yes, yes, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much. Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball. I think the other thought that came into my head when you were saying about we all become less or or we're trying to I'm trying to train myself, I guess, to be less certain about the future. And yeah, who knows what's going to when one of us might get sick and be out of commission for a couple of weeks or something like that, right? That's kind of mm. what I'm working with. So it makes me more efficient at work. Like every day that I wake up and I like check and I'm like, oh, no sore throat this morning. Okay, good. <laughs> and that's like a motivating thing. I'm going to get a good, like I'm going to make use of every minute of that day to try to, to try to move forward with whatever I'm working on that day. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've gotten more efficient at that at getting work done because of that feeling. That's so. good. Yeah. I'm extremely inefficient. I, I'd still, <laughs> I'm still very, okay, relative to how things were, I'm still very, probably inefficient, but I think I've gotten better over the past few weeks at how much work I'm getting done. Yeah. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a couple other things on my list, but I'm just gonna cut those and put them tomorrow. No, tomorrow. I'll talk about them tomorrow. And you're gonna, you have the joke? Do you have a joke? We already did. I should have mentioned, I should have given credit to Susan for the April 45th date joke. Thank you, Susan. And then Avril sent us a good joke we can finish things off with. Where is it? Oh, yeah. All right, so there are two main things responsible for spreading the coronavirus. One, how dense the population is, and two, how dense the population (laughs) is. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, very good. It's called a pun. Okay. Okay, that's April 22nd. Okay, good Good night. night.